0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Gershon Benelio, Dr. Gordon Sack, of blessed memory, a dear friend, and a friend of Torch. May his soul be elevated in heaven. And as always, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. We are in the end of the book of Exodus and what a long saga it has been. Of course, the Jewish people start off in Egypt, and then they're enslaved in Egypt, and then there's infanticide, and then we meet Moshe, and then the burning bush, and then we have the ten miraculous plagues of Egypt, and the Exodus, and the Matzah, and the manna, and the splitting of the sea, and the war with Amalek, and then Jethro shows up, and Jethro, the McKinsey consultant, as we like to call him, he improves the systems, we have the Ten Commandments at Sinai, and now we have five weeks of of tabernacle and golden calf and of course those are related the tabernacle is the atonement for the golden calf but now we're getting to the end this is the last installment in the book of exodus and in our parsha we're finally getting closure on This whole episode. We're wrapping up the actual construction of the tabernacle and we have the calculations and the tabulations and the final inspections and we go through all the materials and everything's actually assembled. And finally, the parsha ends, the book ends with the presence of God finally arriving in the tabernacle. Now the Ramban tells us that the whole book has a consistent theme. The theme of this whole book is redemption. Redemption, of course, starts off in Egypt. Jewish people are enslaved in Egypt. They're tormented, oppressed, they're suffering, and the Almighty saves them. There's a redemption. But redemption after the Exodus is not complete until we have God among us. There's a, there's one long story here of the Exodus. There's the Exodus from Egypt and that is concluded when the Jewish people enter into God's embrace that is cemented with the tabernacle, God's in our midst, and finally the book can end. I want to focus on the beginning of our Parsha, specifically the second verse of the Parsha and the very strange comment we find in Rashi. We're going to read something that's so strange so surprising, so perplexing, so unusual, so obviously problematic that we know there's some sort of golden nugget of wisdom here. Whenever you have a glaring question, you know that there's something really valuable hiding in plain sight. So the parsha begins, these are the tabulations, the counting of the Mishkan, the Mishkan, the tabernacle of testimony that was done, that was tabulated. As per the word of Moshe, the work of the Levites done by Itamar, the son of Aaron. That's the first opening verse of our parsha. And then we read, Ubitsalel ben Uri ben Chur, and Betzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Chur, from the tribe of Judah, he did all that God commanded Moshe. We have Betzalel, and he's like the general contractor of the Mishkan. Moshe actually did not build the tabernacle himself. We have this boy, it turns out, Betzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, and he has some helpers. We have a Halli of Ben Achisamach from the tribe of Dan, and a bunch of volunteers, and they actually implement the work. They actually construct the Mishkan. They build the tabernacle and all its vessels. So how did it work? Betzalel, he wasn't a prophet. So the way it worked is that God spoke to Moshe and he gave him all the precise details and the dimensions and the materials needed for the Mishkan and the vessels. And then Moshe conveyed that to Bezalel, the general contractor, the GC of the tabernacle project, and he implemented it with his team. So God tells Moshe, Moshe conveys it to Bezalel, and Bezalel builds it. Bezalel actually executes on those plans. So for example... We have the ark. God tells Moshe, build an ark and these are the dimensions. Gold inside, gold outside, wood, got to have poles on the side on top. He put the cover with the cherubs. He gives them all the instructions and all the dimensions and all the materials and Moshe passes that information on to Bitzalel and Bitzalel executes the order. That's how it works. And that's true with the ark and with all the other vessels and the Mishkan in its entirety. If so, Rashi points out that the second verse of our parsha is very problematic. What does the verse say? It says, B'tzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur from the tribe of Judah, he did, he executed, he implemented all that God commanded Moshe. What it should have said is that he did all that Moshe commanded him. God tells Moshe, Moshe tells B'tzalel. B'tzalel does what Moshe told him, not what God told Moshe. The verse is skipping a step. That's the question that Rashi asks. Why does it say that Sal did what God instructed Moses? It should have said Sal did what Moshe instructed him. That's Rashi's question. And if we just had the question, we'd say, well, it's not such a big question. We could work around that question. That is a solvable problem. Yeah, God told Moshe and and, and somehow Moshe, of course, told Batsal, It's not such a big problem. But Rashi's answer is such a bomb. It's such an explosion. It's so problematic, but I think it opens up portals that we wouldn't have had otherwise. It says Rashi, but did what God told Moshe, but Betsal did not do what Moshe told him. It doesn't say that Betsalal heeded to Moshe, but Salal did not heed to Moshe. He listened to what God told Moshe, but he did not listen to what Moshe told him. And then it elaborates, Rashi elaborates. This is based upon the Talmud. Moshe told B'Tzalel, make for me a tabernacle with all the vessels, but he said, first make the vessels, first make the ark and the menorah and the table and the altar, the inner altar, the outer altar, first make all the the vessels that go in the structure, and then you make the structure to house it all. That's what Moshe told Pizzalo. And B'tzalel says, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. That's against the the convention. First, you build a house, and then you buy the furniture to populate the house with. That makes a lot more sense. First, you build the house, and then you purchase or build the furnishings. So if you have a Mishkan, a tabernacle, a big building with lots of stuff inside of it, it makes sense to first build the building. And once the building is done, then you could build the other things to go inside of the building. So that's B'Tzalel's retort to Moshe. Why are you telling me to build the vessels first and only then the structure? It makes much more sense first to build the structure and then to build the vessels. And Moshe says to him, this is where it gets so surprising. Moshe says to him, actually... You know what? You're right. And come to think of it, that's actually what God told me. God actually told me to first make the structure and only then to make the vessels. And he says, your name is Betzalel, which can be read as L in the shade of God. You must have been in on it. You must have known that God really wanted us to first construct the building, the edifice, the structure, and only then to make the vessels. That's the Rashi. And indeed, B'Tzalel did as God told Moshe, but not as Moshe told him. Moshe told him to build the vessels first. But instead, he did what God told Moshe, namely to build the structure first. And B'Tzalel is so clever. He is so bright. What a genius. He is in The shade of God, he is in on it. He knows that it's much more logical to first build the house, the structure, before what goes into it, total genius, absolute brilliance. That's the Rashi. And of course, the question is obvious. Moshe acknowledges that God actually told him to first make the structure, and only then to make the vessels that go inside the structure. Yet somehow, when Moshe conveyed that to B'tzalel, he flipped it around. Instead of telling B'tzalel what God told him, he flipped it around. He said, first make the vessels and only then make the structure. Why did Moshe change the order? God told Moshe, Moshe himself acknowledges this, God told Moshe, first build the house, the structure, and then the vessels. Yet Moshe does a switcheroo. He tells B'Tzal first to make the vessels, and only then to make the house. And B'Tzal calls him out on it. And Moshe says, wow, how did you know that? You must have been in the shade of God. But the question, the obvious question is, why did Moshe, to begin with, why did he switch it? Why did he alter it? Why didn't he tell Batsalel exactly what God told him? That's the question. I think the answers that we're going to discover are going to reveal to us the fundamental principles and prerequisites that we need to launch any initiative. Of course, this is the most ambitious initiative in the history of humanity. Let's build a physical edifice and have God dwell amongst us. There's nothing more ambitious in all of human history. And here we're, we're reading in our parsha. We're reading about how it was done. What were the steps that happened? What were the crises? What were the challenges? What were the conflicts? And we see that there's a disagreement, ostensibly, between Moshe, who's ultimately responsible for it, and Betzalah, who's going to implement it. This, a disagreement here. And I think when we analyze it and we discover what's actually happening over here, we will learn what it takes to launch any initiative. And I think even more broadly, you want to change. You want to change yourself. You want to change your habits. You want to change your attitude about something. You want to change anything. You also need to learn what it takes to change. There's a bit change happening Our Parsha begins, God is not dwelling amongst the Jewish people. Our Parsha ends, and the Almighty is dwelling in the tabernacle that was built. There's a change that's happening here. What is going on on the ground at the beginning, that is what we are pleased, God, about to discover. So this question that we asked on... This whole narrative, why did Moshe do the switcheroo, is not a new question. It is asked by many of the commentators, including the great Maharal. The Maharal of Prague, one of the greatest rabbis of the last time 500 years. He asks the question in a few short words. Why did Moshe switch it? Why did Moshe alter it? Why didn't Moshe tell B'tzalel what God told him. Tell him to build the mission first and then to build the vessels. So he says something absolutely fascinating. He says, what's more important? What's more important? The house, the structure, or the vessels? He says, the vessels are more important. And I can prove it to you because we're going to read about in a few weeks about the transportation of the tabernacle. Periodically, the tabernacle was taken apart, disassembled. Parts of it were put onto wagons, drawn by oxen. Parts of it were carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And the vessels were all carried by the Levites from the family of Kahas. And the other parts of the Mishkan were carried by the other families. And Kahas, we know for sure, was the most honorable, distinguished, family, and therefore we know for sure that the vessels are more important. And therefore, Moshe thought it made sense to start with the goal, with the objective, What's with, with what's most important, what's most important about this whole project, this whole enterprise of the tabernacle, what's most important about it is the vessels. Says Moshe, that's where you start. You start with the goal. But Botsalo, he wasn't thinking about what's most important. He was thinking about when you build something, what is the natural and logical way to build it? And then the Maral says something fascinating. This is, this to me was the clincher idea. There are two people here overseeing this project. Moshe is like the philosophical, theoretical visionary of the project. And Botsalo, he is the Actual implementer. He's actualizing this project. And everyone did their job. There is a job of a visionary, of a dreamer, of someone who's working in the abstract. And that's Moshe. And his job is to focus on the goal, on the end. And then there's Batal. Batal is actually the builder. And his job is, what do I need to do right now? What's the first step? What's the second step? What's the third step? Not thinking about the future. Not thinking about the end point. Not thinking about the goal. What do I need to do today? And then tomorrow. And then the next day. And then week after week. And eventually, once it's all done, we can think about the goal. There's two attitudes that are needed for any great project. You have to have the role of Moshe. And you have to have the role of B'Tzalel. Moshe is looking at the goal. What is the goal of the tabernacle? The goal. Well, that's captured in the vessels. In fact, our parsha begins, "Ela pekudei hamishchan." These are the tabulations, the counting of the mishkan, and then it qualifies it, "Mishkan is the tabernacle of the testimony. What does that mean? What's a tabernacle of testimony? It's a reference to the tablets that were in the Ark, in the Holy of Holies. The Torah, what we have from God, that connection, that remnant, so to speak, of Sinai. That is what the Mishnah is ultimately all about. Yeah, you need a house for it. You need a uh, courtyard, and you need the planks, and you need the wood, and you need the curtains. But ultimately... The goal is all about the vessels. The Ramban, he tells us that the, the goal of the tabernacle is to be a continuation of Sinai, to perpetuate the connection and the closeness and the relationship we have with the Almighty at Sinai. We have the tabernacle. And that connection is most captured by the tablets in the Ark, in the Holy of Holies, in the center point of the Mishkan. That's the goal. That's where God spoke to Moshe. We read earlier, chapter 25, verse 22. God says, I will speak to you. I will communicate with you from between the cherubs in the holy of holies. So Moshe is looking at it. And as the visionary, Moshe is thinking about the goal. That was his job. And the goal-oriented person in this duo is focusing on the vessels. And Betzalel, he's the builder, He's got to actually do it. And he's thinking about the process. And that's his job. Yes, the goal is the art, and that's where Moshe is focusing on. But the process starts with a structure, and that is where B'Tzalel started. And I think this creates for us a very useful framework. Every project has to have an element of Moshe, a vision, a dream. Where could this actually end up if things work out well? And you start with the end and it has to have a Batsala component. Every project has to have a vision of what it can become and it has to have a plan, a manual, a roadmap for implementation. Perhaps we could call this the CEO and the COO. Two different roles and you need both of them to shepherd a big project to completion. We need Moshe on one hand, talking about the ark and the end goal and the raw power of the tabernacle and this connection that we're going to have with God and this continuity of Sinai. We're going to have God in our midst. We need a dreamer to inject the excitement and the energy and the pizzazz and the oomph in the project. And then we need the guy, the Batsalo, who is the project manager, who says, this is the humble step number one we need to take. And this is the humble step number two we need to take. And those are both needed. Without vision, without thinking about what this is all about, you're toiling for a long time, but it's aimless. It's thankless. It's fruitless. It's just agony and futility. You have to always keep in mind the vision, the goal, the tablets, the vessels, the connection, the cherubs. You're slaving away at, uh, you know, one of the curtains. You're doing a curtain like you're thinking about the end. But of course, without a clear eyed understanding of what to do right now. What's my job today? What's my job tomorrow? What comes next? Without that, you will stay a dreamer forever. Moshe was a visionary. He played a vital role. And his job was to invoke the endpoint, the vessels, and that is the goal. And B'Tsalal is the implementer. And he knows you have to crawl before you can walk, and you have to walk before you can run, you have to run before you can sprint, you have to put one foot in front of the other. You have to start with something which maybe not so glamorous and you're building up slowly and eventually we'll get to the end point. But I think this Maharal, the way he explains this dynamic here between Moshe and Batsalo, it's a very, I think, useful framework. When you want to undertake a big initiative, you have to start off with a vision. You have to have the eye to the prize. You have to have a view on the goal. You have to think about the end game at the very beginning. But of course, you can't try to leap forward. You can't do a great leap forward. We know how those things end. You take a small step forward and a small step over many, many, many steps, many iterations, you follow step after step. Eventually, you'll get there. I was thinking that this is a useful framework certainly If you want to change your personality, your habits, your dieting, whatever it is, this is useful. You know, when you want to build a building, so you have to pitch your investors. How do you pitch your investors? You you don't show renderings, mock-ups of the foundation or of the parking lot that's going to be subterranean. You show them a mock-up of the finished project when you actually build You start from ground zero, you lay the foundation, but you have to know what you're aspiring towards. You know, there's a special blessing that we say by weddings. It's a common custom. It's not a universal custom. It's a common custom to say by weddings. I call it the blessing of Laban. Now, what's the blessing of Laban? In chapter 24 of Genesis, verse 60, Rebecca, Laban's younger sister, is going to go marry Isaac, and when she's about to leave, he gives her a blessing. May you grow and burgeon to alfe, which means thousands. Reva means tens of thousands. May you spawn a nation of tens of thousands of people. And then he says, And may your descendants, may they inherit the gate of their enemies. Rebecca, she's she's single, and Laban is already giving her a blessing that she should have thousands and tens of thousands of descendants who conquer their enemies. And there is a tradition by our weddings to invoke our weird uncle, Uncle Laban, the crazy uncle from Thanksgiving Laban, we invoke him and his blessing, and we say that to the bride. That's the dream. That's the vision. You're about to embark on a huge project, on a huge initiative. You're building another link in this chain going back to Abraham. You're undertaking something really big and ambitious, and you should think about the big picture. In practice... You got to start really slow. You have to spend a whole year trying to build a relationship. ishto There's a mitzvah in the Torah to spend a year at home, to not go out to wars or other pursuits. Why? To gladden your wife, to build up this relationship from the very beginning, to maybe avoid explosive fights, small fights, small little skirmishes are okay, to try to acclimate to each other Slowly, B'Tzal, don't forget. We have a dream, and that's the motion part, but there's also a way to do things, and that is the way B'Tzal did it. At a bris ceremony, child, the boy's eight days old, and then they have a bris, and they join the fraternity of Abraham, and we say, <laughs> just as this child joined into the covenant of Abraham, So too, may they enter Torah, chuppah, may they go under the wedding canopy, and good deeds. At the very beginning of the project, we have the eye on the ball, an eye on the goal. We have a vision of what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get that this child should be able to be independent on their own, get married, go Torah, good deeds, be a fully functioning independent adult. In practice sleep training, try to get to sleep through the night, learn how to roll over. In practice, we take really small steps. I think this is a very nice framework for us as we try to change and improve ourselves. We have to start small, take small little nibbles at the goal, but we also have to know what we're working so hard for. What are we fighting for? What are we sweating for? We have to have a vision for the end in small steps, for now. You want to perfect yourselves? You want to perfect your character? You want to improve yourself? You want to change? You need this duality of Moshe and B'Tzalel. You have to know what the goal looks at the end, and that has to be present right at the very beginning, but you also have to know what that first step of your million-step journey is, take small steps that's one answer to this question in rashi and now we understand the dynamic between moshe and betzal and this comes courtesy of the maharal and this shows us framework number one for how to have change this is a prerequisite you have two components here at play You have the B'Tzal component, you have the Moshe component, you have the vision at the very end, and you know what you need to do right now. I want to suggest and share another answer to this question of why Moshe did the switcheroo, why Moshe said first build the vessels and then build the actual structure. And this second answer will give us yet a second framework of what is needed To change. We'll learn a second attitude. If you want to implement a great new initiative, you want to change. You need to know this idea as well. Betzalel comes from sterling pedigree. He, of course, comes from the tribe of Judah. This is the tribe of great people. This is the tribe of bravery and leadership and monarchy. And we read about Betzalel. He comes from this sterling, important Noble family, going back, Salah ben Uri ben Chur to his very important and illustrious grandfather. Now Chur had appeared already in the Torah. He was Moshe's nephew, and when Moshe goes up on top of the mountain in the war against Amalek to his right was Aaron holding up his hands, and to his left was Chur, and they supported Moshe's hands for the duration of the war. Now Chur's parents, which make up Salah's great-grandparents. They are also very significant because Hur's father is Caleb and Hur's mother is Miriam, Moshe's older sister. So this is one of the first families. This is the Kennedys or the Bushes or, I don't know, the Rockefellers of the Jewish people. Very important people. And when we study his antecedents, we see a very interesting pattern Now, the Midrash tells us B'tzalel, he was only 13 when he was nominated by God and by Moshe to go build the Mishnah. Again, the most ambitious project, more ambitious than the Hoover Dam or, I guess, building aircraft carriers or huge buildings in downtown Manhattan. A huge ambitious project. It's a 13-year-old doing it. Why, says the Midrash, because of his antecedents. He came with the merit of his progenitors, and that is why he merited to be the one who's given all this wisdom to be able to do this grand project. So the Midrash tells us that his grandfather, Chur, was someone who died a heroic death of martyrdom. When the people started to do the golden calf, there was one man who tried to stop them. And that was Hur. And they promptly slaughtered him. When Moshe left, he's grown up for 40 days, in chapter 24 of our book, the book of Exodus, he appoints Aaron and Hur to be in charge in his stead. So, There is this brewing idolatry idea being suggested. And Hur says, wait a minute, will put me in charge? I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop this debacle and disaster from happening. So he tries to stop them and they kill him. And then Aaron says, well, if they kill me too, the verse says if you kill a prophet who is also a priest, you can never be forgiven. So he plays ball. And of course, with the rest of his history, it's a total disaster. Says the Midrash, why did Betsalel merit to be the one who was selected to build the Mishkan? Because of his grandfather, his late great-grandfather, great as in a descriptive term, his wonderful grandfather, his heroic grandfather, Hur, because of his heroism and because of his loyalty to God. That's why Betsalel was chosen to build the Mishkan. The ministry gives an analogy. There was a king, and there was a revolt, and there was a mutiny, there was an insurrection, and there was one loyal officer who tried to defend the honor and the glory of the king. And this officer even died as a result. Once the king quelled the rebellion, he says, your kids, the kids of this heroic officer, you are being given any position you want because of your grandfather. Chur, stood up for the honor of God. The nation is rebelling. There is an insurrection and he stood firm. He wasn't swayed by the mob and he died in martyrdom. God says, I'm going to repay you. Your grandson, he'll be the one to build the Mishnah. So the characteristic we see here in Hur is that he's he's not someone who drinks the Kool-Aid. He's not someone who is easily swayed. He stands firm in his principles and his belief, even if he has to be a maverick doing it alone. He was willing to stand up for what's right, even if it wasn't popular. That's Hur, and in the merit of that, B'tzalel is able to build the Mishkan. Now, if you go one generation up, we see Hur's father, Caleb, the great-grandfather of B'tzalel, and he did the same thing. The same characteristic was present in Caleb. He was one of the spies sent to reconnoiter the land in the book of Numbers, and all the say terrible things about the land of Israel. And Caleb stands strong. He defies the crowd. He stands up for what he believes. And he almost got killed, like his son, Kor before him. He almost got killed for defending God's honor. Again, he risked his life, stood up to the mob, didn't capitulate even when he had to go it alone. Similarly, Miriam. So this is Khur's great-grandmother. I'm sorry, not Khur's great-grandmother. This is B'tzalel's great-grandmother, Khur's mother. She had this characteristic as well. She was a midwife in Egypt. And Pharaoh says, kill all the newborn boys. And she says, no. And the Midrash tells us, in the merit of that, she merited a descendant, B'tzalel, to build the... Mishkan. So we see this great pattern. We see three of B'Tzala's antecedents that were put into a very compromised position. And the easy thing would have been to just give in to the mob, to give in to the autocrat, and to do something unconscionable. But all three had the resolve and the strength of character to be able to stand up for what's true, even when facing a mortal threat to their life. Now, it's interesting that Miriam, the great-grandmother of Bezalel, there's a second instance where she was willing to take the unpopular position. The Talmud tells us, the Book of Sota, that when when Pharaoh made a decree, all newborn boys are going to be thrown into the sea, into the river, Her father, so this is the father of Aaron and Moshe and Miriam, her father, his name was Amram, he says, this is a crazy environment to bring children into. I'm going to divorce my wife. So he divorced his wife, Yochev, and because he was such a significant person in the community, everyone else followed suit. How could you bring children into an environment, into a world, where there's infanticide, they're killing babies. This is not a healthy, hospitable world to bring children into. He divorced his wife. And because he was such a noteworthy person, everyone else followed suit. Until a young girl named Miriam walked over to her father and said to him, Daddy, you are a worse villain than Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh's killing, murdering babies, but you're worse for three reasons. Number one, Pharaoh's killing only the males. By you ending Jewish procreation, there's no males and there ain't no females. So you're worse, number one. Number two, Pharaoh wants to kill them physically. By them never being born, they don't have life, not physical life and not spiritual life. You're worse, reason number two. And finally, Pharaoh's decree, we don't know if it will actually be fulfilled. But your decree will definitely be fulfilled. So, you, my dear daddy, you are worse than Pharaoh. This is coming from a six year old girl, Miriam. But you know what? Amram said, You're right. You are right. And he remarried his wife. And everyone saw Amram remarrying his wife, wife, so they remarried their wives. And thus the Jewish people lived to see another day, thanks to the heroism and the chutzpah, frankly, of Miriam, the great-grandmother of Betzalel. Now what's really interesting about this particular story is that the only person that made Miriam's calculation was Miriam herself. Everyone else just followed the crowd. Went with the masses. This is what everyone's doing. Okay. There's a mass divorce event here. Okay. Where do I sign? Give me the documents. It's one of those fast, quickie divorces. $999. No questions. No frills. Everyone's just doing it. This is what everyone does. Everyone just followed blindly. And there's one person who looks at the world and says, wait a minute. What's actually happening? Does this make sense? Who are you? You're a six-year-old kid. What are you getting involved? These are adults here are talking in smoke-filled rooms. We're important people, deal with important things. And she says no. And to his credit, Amram says, you know what, you're right. And she changes the course of history. She's willing to stand up not only to a villain, a real villain, like Pharaoh. She's even willing to stand up to her father, the greatest leader of the people of her day, she pointed out his mistake. And this brings us to B'Tzal. If you look at his bloodline, he comes from a long line of great people, of courageous and determined people, people of conviction, people of principle, people who don't just blindly copycat others, people who stand up for what they believe, even when it's unpopular. And when they see something that, that's wrong, they act, they resist, they protest. And these are the people that are the ancestors of B'Tzalel. Moshe did something very clever to answer a very basic question. The characteristic that we need to build the Mishkan is someone that has this bold traits of Caleb, of Miriam, of Khor. In fact, the Midrash tells us the merit of these antecedents, standing up for what they believed, even when it was unpopular, that is why they merited Tebetzal. This is the characteristic needed. But Moshe wanted to inspect and to see, does Betzal actually have within him as well? So he decided to switch the order that they might have told him. As a way of testing, is this someone that will blindly follow? Or is this someone like his grandfather, like his great grandfather, like his great grandmother, that will question, that will resist, that's independent enough to stand up for the truth, even when it's not popular to do so? Most people, Moshe tells you something. You just accept it. This is Moshe. But Petzal has been tested. Does he have that same truth compass of Hur, of Caleb, of Miriam? Is he going to cower in the face of adversity or is he going to stand up strong like his great antecedents? Now it's important to remember this is after Sinai. And this is after the second set of tablets. And this is after Moshe came down from the mountain with the second set of tablets, and his face was aglow, glowing as bright as the sun. Even Aaron, the verse tells us in chapter 34 of Exodus, even Aaron was scared to approach him. And Moshe had to put on a mask to not blind the people. Moshe was like an angel walking among men, and everyone was terrified of him. And B'Tzalel is all of 13. And Moshe wants to see, will he stand up? Because that is what's needed. That's the characteristic of Khur and of Miriam and of Caleb. And only if B'Tzal himself has it as well, only then is he a good candidate to build the Mishkan. So Moshe does a switcheroo. He says, build the vessels first against what God said to him as a test. Build the vessels first and then build the Mishkan. And B'Tzal seizes upon it. I think he made a mistake, Mr. Moshe, Rabbi Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. I think he made a mistake. Doesn't it make sense, more sense to make the house first, the structure first, the Mishkan, and only then to make the vessels that go inside of it? Are you sure that you heard God correctly? Maybe you made a mistake. This is like Miriam-level chutzpah. He's a little kid, and he goes with to Moshe. Moshe is already accepted as a universal prophet. He already did the 10 plagues. He went 40 days and 40 nights without eating and drinking. Everyone's terrified of Moshe. His own brother, his older brother Aaron, is scared to look at him. And this child, B'Tzal, tells Moshe, the greatest person who ever lived, I'm sorry, I think you have it backwards. And B'Tzal nailed it. And Moshe says to him, you know what? You... You have it. You have what it takes. You are in the shade of God. He is so impressed by him because by Betzalel standing up to Moshe, he is demonstrating that like Miriam and like Hur and like Caleb, they inquire, they ask questions, they stand up. They don't just accept things as is. And they're even willing to question Amram, when he's making a mistake, Moshe, when he's making a mistake. But Salel comes from a long line of what we would call rugged, independent thinkers. People who are willing to go against the crowd, against the, so so to speak, wisdom of the crowd, go it alone if necessary, willing to risk everything for what they believe, willing to question the conventional wisdom He had the pedigree to be that kind of person. And Moshe was inspecting him. Does he himself actually display that quality as well? So Moshe said, I'm going to do something illogical. I'm going to tell him, build the vessels first and only then build the Mishkan. Let's see if he has the guts of Miriam, of Caleb, of Hur to call me out on it. And B'tzalel did it. He wasn't just the biological descendant of Caleb, of Miriam, of Hur, he embodied their trait. What does it take to build the Mishkan? What kind of attitude do you need to have to undertake such an ambitious project? You have to be someone who doesn't just accept what other people say. You have to have such what we would call maybe irrational confidence, such swashbuckling panache and bravado. It's this belief in doing what's right, even if it violates social norms, it's a refusal to accept the prevailing wisdom. The prevailing wisdom is that you can't just build a building and have God dwell in your midst. Are you crazy? Imagine you made that proposal. We're going to make a house, and we're going to use lots of gold, and we're going to have God come dwell in our midst. You have to have such a a rational confidence to do that. An initiative of this kind demands incredible boldness. If you think about it, any new initiative, by definition, is a vote, is a decision against the way things have always been. Any change, any new initiative is a challenge to the conventional wisdom. And there's no bigger challenge than saying, we're going to build a house and God will come dwell in our midst. You have to be willing to oppose any incumbents. My favorite Ramban, listen to this Ramban. In last week's parasha, he's talking about the helpers of Bitsalo. But Salah had an an army of volunteers came to join him. And the verse tells us, chapter 35, verse 21. The verse says, All the people whose heart was elevated and whose spirit was dedicated, they came to do the work on the Mishkan. And the Ramban is trying to figure out what does it mean to have your heart be elevated. What does that mean? Heart be elevated? It's a very unusual term. But these are the people who came to volunteer to work on the Mishkan project. Their heart was elevated. So what does that mean? That's the question of the Ramban in chapter 35, verse 21. And he says like this. None of the people who worked on the Mishkan in the embroidery department or the metallurgy department or the woodworking department the weaving, all of the intricate work, none of them were classically trained as a specialist in that field. No one trained them. They didn't apprentice by someone. So how, pray tell, did they know how to do this very fine and intricate work? Again, remember, these are people that a couple months ago were slaves. They're not doing very fine, very intricate work. That's what it means, their heart ascended. Their heart ascended means that they discovered within themselves nature that they did not know that they had. They discovered abilities, latent abilities that were always there in their heart, but they were not aware of it because it was submerged and deep, deep down within them in their heart, they weren't aware of it, but they 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 ascended their heart, they elevated their heart, and therefore they were able to do it. And they discovered that they were actually natural at this. And they went to motion and they say, Okay, here. I'm reporting for duty. Give me a job. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. This is an amazing, this is an amazing idea on the Rampan. The people were not trained, but they discovered their innate latent, natural talents, and without any formal training, without any apprenticeship, without any of the traditional methods of learning a trade, of learning a vocation, of learning a skill, the only way they learned it is with their heart ascending. And it came with the natural ability baked into every heart. And that's what they used to do the work. How did B'Tzalel know how to do all the fine, intricate work of metal, of wood, embroidery? How did his army of lieutenants know how to do this? Their heart ascended. Their heart was elevated. Their heart had all the natural ability in it, but it bubbled to the surface, and they were able to do it sans a teacher. Through this ascension of their heart, they discovered hitherto unknown talents. And once their heart ascended, they discovered that they knew how to do it. All along, they just never knew about it. An amazing idea here. We all have abilities and powers within us. We're just not aware of them. They're in our heart. They're buried there. And in order to access those powers, we have to have an ascension of our heart. What does that mean? We have to just believe in ourselves and believe that if the Almighty has a job for us, we can do it, even though it seems crazy to do that. And everyone is telling you, that is insane. Stay in your lane. You've heard that term. Stay in your lane. What are you trying to do here? And what does Petzal tell someone who says, stay in your lane? Excuse me. I'm the descendant of Hur and Caleb. And Miriam, I never stay in my lane. He's someone who epitomized the ascension of their heart. And therefore, he was able to step forward and say, I can do it. Because the Almighty will help me do it. What does it take to build a Mishkan or to do anything transformative? It takes the characteristic of Batsalo. It takes the ability to have this irrational confidence. I'm not trained. No one's holding my hand. I'm being thrown into the deep end. Learn how to swim. You have two options. You either swim or you die. That's it. And you know what? That's the best way to learn how to swim, even though I'm not advising that. If you've ever seen an Israeli contractor, you know exactly what it means to believe in yourself and to not accept anyone saying that you cannot do it. I have a friend with, thank God, a very large family, and he was working for a certain school, and I guess it wasn't a good working environment, wasn't making enough money, whatever it is. He decided he's becoming a roofer. Now, what does the yeshiva guy know about being a roofer? Absolutely nothing. What do you know about being a roofer? But he discovered talents that he did not know that he had. And he started a roofing company and it's doing well. And the truth is he jumped into the deep end without a plan. And the only plan was learn how to swim because you have no other choice. That is the kind of confidence. Again, not a prideful confidence. That is the kind of confidence that Petzalah had. That allowed him to tell Moshe, I'm sorry, I think you made a mistake. And of course it came from the influence of Hur and Miriam and Caleb. But it's born out of a recognition that if God demands something of you, he wants you to build a Mishkan, you have to believe in yourself. You have to be confident. You have to know that you can do it. And you can't get disheartened by the gatekeepers. And you can't buy the fiction of this mainstream, the way things are always done. None of that. You're going to change the world. You have to be crazy to believe it. But only the people that are crazy enough to believe it ever get a shot of trying to do it. Like Hur, standing up to the mob when they're wrong. Like Caleb doing the same, even though they're righteous spies. You know, they're important people. Like Miriam standing up to Pharaoh and her father, and like Bessal, standing up to Moshe when he said something that was wrong, of course, we have to always be respectful of our elders, but the quality of undertaking an initiative, of being so bold to believe that you can change or you can impact something in the world, you have to be your own person. And you cannot accept the limitations foisted upon you by others. And this is the way to unlock your potential and to accomplish great things. (laughs) Let's get to this week's exquisite insight. In our Parsha, Moshe is inspecting the Mishkan after its completion the team of Bitzalel and Ahaliyah and all the workers, they did all the work. And if there's nothing to perfection and they show it to Moshe and he gives them a blessing and the Parsha ends with seven days where Moshe is going to serve as the high priest. He's going to bring the sacrifices every day in the morning. He assembles the Mishkan. And at night, he disassembles it. And then the eighth day is the first day of Nisan where Moshe assembles it for good. And on that day, Aaron and his four sons take over. Of course, that day as well, two of his sons, two of Aaron's sons, of you, die. But there's an amazing verse in chapter 39, verse 33. The verse says that all these people, they brought the Mishkan, they brought the tabernacle to Moshe, all the different parts of the tabernacle, the vessels, and all the different aspects of the, of the tabernacle. So Rashi says, Why did they bring Moshe to the tabernacle? And he says, I did another surprising Rashi, because they did not know how to erect it. They couldn't build it. And the Rashi adds, Moshe, he didn't build anything in the Mishran. And God wanted that at least Moshe should have some part of the Mishran. So God wanted him to actually assemble it, to actually erect it. And the reason why they weren't able to do it and Moshe was able to do it is because those beams, those planks of wood, 10, almost tall. Think of it as like 20 feet tall, really big, really thick. It was so heavy, no one could lift it. So they say, Moshe, we have a problem. We have to assemble the Mishkan. We can't do it because these are too heavy. So Moshe says, what do you want from me? I'm not a bodybuilder. I can't lift it. So he went to God, and God says, you build it, you lift it, and I'll make a miracle. It'll look like you're lifting it, but it's really me who's doing the heavy lifting. So Moshe lifts it and makes these massive beams stand up straight, and that's why the verse tells us in chapter 40, that the Mishkan was erected. It doesn't say Moshe erected the Mishkan. It says the Mishkan was erected on its own because really God did it, but he made Moshe look like Moshe was doing it because the beams were so heavy. Fascinating and strange idea here in Rashi. On one hand, Rashi seems to say that the reason why Moshe had to do it is because it was too heavy. Alternatively, Rashi tells us the reason why Moshe do it is because God wanted to make sure that at least he let him have something to do in the process of building the Mishkan. And of course, there's a general question in this Rashi, you know, why indeed was none of the actual building done by Moshe? It's almost reminiscent of David being disallowed from building the temple. But here's the question I want to focus on. For this week's, it's Twizit Insight. Are you Ready? Every time the nation traveled, and they traveled 42 different times where they would encamp and settle down and then the cloud would lift and would travel to a different place and they would have to quickly disassemble the Mishkan, put it onto those wagons that are drawn by oxen, carry parts of it on their shoulders, and go to the next place. So you're constantly assembling and disassembling the Mishkan. And those planes were still very heavy. So Moshe did it the first time. Subsequently, Moshe did not do it. It was done by the Levites. So if these plates were too heavy the first time, what happened in the subsequent stops where the mission was disassembled and reassembled? I think that's an interesting question. And the first thing I thought of is the, uh, the four-minute mile. You know what the four-minute mile? Four-minute mile was like this... Accomplishment, no one could ever run a sub four-minute mile. And then this one gentleman named Roger Bannister broke it. And once he breaks it, a week later, everyone else is doing it. It's almost like there's like a psychological barrier. You do it once and now you've unlocked it for everyone else. Now it's it's eminently doable. People see it's doable and they're able to emulate and copy it. It becomes routine. But I saw something really incredible in uh, a book called Othros HaTorah. He says something so fascinating, and this will serve as a third framework of what we need to do when we want to undertake a grand initiative. He quotes the Zohar. The Zohar says that when the Mishnah was built, there's now a permanent place in this world that's a domicile for God, a residence for God. And you know what that did? That banished the Satan, the other force, so to speak, the idolatry, the Eitzara. It banished it, and there's a very dramatic description in the mid, in, in the Zohar here of where it actually went. But the the general principle is that with the infusion of godly, divine holiness in the world. There wasn't a vacuum previously before that. There was like an aura of impurity and that impurity was banished from the world. And then we read that this force of impurity, the Yetzirah, evil inclination, the Satan, all these forces, these what we call bad angels, of course they're good angels because they're working on behalf of God, but bad forces, forces of evil in the world, they artificially made those beams really heavy. Those beams were maybe physically heavy, but that's not why the Levites weren't able to do it. They were spiritually heavy because all the angels, the Satan and the Yetzirah, were making it artificially heavy. Once, Moshe did it once, those forces were banished. They are no longer artificially made more heavy than they actually are. And now it's eminently doable, even by people who are not Moshe. Only Moshe had the spiritual ability to overcome those forces, just like Moshe at the top of the mountain. The Zohar tells us that Moshe at the top of the mountain, he's lifting up his arms. He's battling the angel of Amalek. Moshe is able to overcome angels. The rest of the people, they say it's, it's too heavy. We, this is unliftable by humans. Moshe is fighting the angel. He's able to banish the angel. Once the Mishnah is erected once, those forces have no place or have a very small place left in the world. The beams are no longer so heavy. Now it is in fact doable by almost anyone. I was thinking this is really another framework for building any big project or initiative to get started. That first time you do something, that's the hardest. Because if you want to kick out the incumbents, you want to banish all those forces that you're fighting up against, they're putting up some stiff resistance. And they are artificially going to make those beams, those proverbial beams, they're going to make it really heavy. You do it once, you've now gotten rid of some of those forces the second time. And every subsequent time, it is much easier. The Talmud tells us that the people with the greatest potential have the greatest resistance from the Yitzhara. Call Hagodom and If you're greater than your friend, you have a greater Yitzhara. There's more resistance that you face over your friend. When you want to undertake something really big, the bigger the project, the bigger the resistance. But here we learn, you do it once. That's going to be the peak difficulty because you've banished some of those forces. You have to realize that those stiff headwinds, those are the forces that are trying to stop you from doing that project. But I think all told, this gives us another framework for launching new initiatives. The first idea that we saw was that every project has to have a Moshe and a Batsalo. You have to have a dreamer. Think about the end and a practical first step, second step, third step of Batsalo. Moshe is talking about the vessels and the big picture, what the goal of it all is all about. And that's needed. And Batsalo is needed as well. The practical steps of every initiative. That is the first framework. The second framework is you have to have some chutzpah. You have to have some gumption. You have to have some temerity. You have to have some irrational confidence to be able to stand up to the way things have always been done. And finally, you have to know that the beginning is always artificially hard. And once you break through that first barrier of resistance, it's much more smooth sailing there on out. And again, this is not only initiatives. Change of any sort demands these characteristics. On one hand, you need a vision and a plan. You need to have the components of Moshe and the components of Bitsalo. You need a willingness to go up against the establishment. And you need to understand that the beginning is always the hardest. There's a famous Rashi in Parshas Yisro. Call Hathalot. All beginnings are difficult. The first time you move the planes. You're facing really stiff headwinds. You do that once, and now it's much easier. The first time you need to marshal up the strength of motion to do it, once you do it once, it's much easier there on out. With these three prerequisites, you become an unstoppable force. There's no initiative that is not within reach. All change is doable. Nothing can stop you now. I thank you for listening. As always, been with us is rabbitwallchip.com. Have a fantastic day. A splendid, wonderful rest of your week, and an incredible, sensational, terrific, stupendous Shabbos upcoming, and please God, we will talk again on the Parsha Podcast next week.